Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. Today we're talking about hell, where you're going if you're listening to this show because you're clearly deconstructed. And that's where all the deconstructed people go. <laughs> I'm sorry if I triggered you. You triggered me. <laughs> and that's where you're going, going straight to hell, uh, right to the bottom. Uh, we're going to be talking about that. Okay, like, but there is no bottom of hell because it's a circle, Gavi. Yeah. Circles don't have a bottom. Like you're just no because there's no so in I hell like you fall no in hell you fall forever like you never quit falling so there is no bottom that actually sounds kind of peaceful just like falling forever um, what is wrong with you <laughs> just like it, it, people go skydiving I go skydiving I would never go skydiving that is if it, it listen. You know how people say, like, if I post this particular thing on my social media, you know, there's something wrong and it's, it, it's not me. Uh, for me, it would be if I posted that I was going skydiving. I would never, ever, ever do that. Okay. Well, two weeks ago, you said that you were afraid of holes in the ground. So now you're afraid of skydiving. You have to pick a side. Uh, my name is Gabrielle Hakoen. <laughs> I'm here with my BFF, Sadie Carpenter, cult expert, cult survivor, Sadie Carpenter. We are here talking about hell. Last week, we talked about heaven, IFB beliefs about heaven, and how much it is actually like from a biblical source and how much of it is actually just like stuff that's sort of in tradition and is like based on mysticism, mysticism, mystics, (laughs) Washington, D.C., WNBA team, the mystics is what we're talking about today. No, um, this week, we're going to be talking about hell. Sort of the same deal. I personally was very surprised to learn that there isn't a lot about hell actually in the Bible. I assumed that it was all up in there, uh, but I learned that it wasn't. So let's talk about hell. There's there's a lot of Bible verses that 
people may think are about hell. But do you remember when we talked about verses that are used to condemn LGBTQ people? The clobber verses. Clobber verses. Like, sure, that's what it looks like on the surface. But if you take a list of all of those verses, many of them have perfectly valid alternate interpretations. Spoiler alert, they're all about consent. Like, all of those verses are about consent violations. The sin is not the sexual activity with a member of the same sex or gender. The sin is there's a consent issue inherent here. So when you take all of those out, there's like one clobber verse that is hazy on whether it means the sin is being gay or the sin is a consent issue. It's the same thing with hell. If you take a list of all all of the verses about hell, many of them have an alternate explanation that makes sense. And there's comparatively few that we're left to wrestle with. And we're going to be talking about all that stuff today. Uh, But before we get into that, the Leaving Eden podcast is the podcast about my BFF and co-host Sadie Carpenter's life in and escape from the independent fundamental Baptist cult. We talk about this cult. We talk about other cults. We talk about religion. We talk about fundamentalism. We talk about the real and present threat that cults and cult ideologies pose to society as a whole. And it is our goal to promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So if you like our show, if you are a fan of our show, then there are numerous things that you can do to support us. One option is that you can join our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast, where you will find an extended and uncensored and ad free version of today's episode, as well as our other episodes. Yay. And you can also join our Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash groups slash Eden Exodus. You can join our subreddit, which is reddit.com slash r slash Eden Exodus. All right. Our I gave it all to your patrons are Kathleen Moncrief, Melissa Mosley, and Todd Dale on behalf of his cult survivor wife, Madeline Antrim. Our Faith Promise Missions tier patrons are Alex P., Ali Allen, Anisha Patel, Autumn of Our Discontent, Brittany, Krista Walker, Crystal Patterson, Dan the Trans Man, Dora J., Eleanor Donahue, Enchanted Fairy, Hannah Ross, Hannah Montana, Who's Your Ex Fundy? Oh, that's a new one. Welcome. Hope Norum, Horton Hears a Shane, Janine Callen, Jen Kuharski, Jessica Tambo, Jonna, Kat Henwood, Kate Terwee, Kristen Marie, Learned Vixen, Linda Morgan, Lindsay Goss, Madeline Antrim, Madeline Cusick, Maggie Fink, Marlena Stuve, Marcia Millard, Mary Williams, Mary Martin, Megan Arndt, Rob the Methodist, Chartuterie, Stephanie Johnson, Steve and Amy, Susie, Tara McNamara, and Wes the Cowboy. In general, we talk about a lot of potentially triggering topics on this show, including but not limited to suicide and mental health, racism, misogyny, PTSD, and PTSD symptoms, child abuse, mental, physical, and sexual abuse, and spiritual abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will mention at least a few of these topics, but we try very hard to avoid graphic detail unless it's relevant to the story we're telling. And if we are going to go into detail on any of those topics, we do our best to give the audience a heads up before we do so. This episode is all about the IFB view of hell. So we will be talking about all of the different Bible verses about hell. We will be talking about the fire and brimstone and all of it two weeks ago we discussed a hoax 
that was spread by the Trinity Broadcast Network that Soviet researchers who were working on an exploratory drilling project punched a hole through the Earth's crust and confirmed the existence of a hell boiling beneath it. Uh, this hoax, of course, was very easily debunked and very quickly debunked by us, among other people who have also looked into it. I definitely recommend that episode that we did for info about why the IFB and other fundamentalists believe some of the things they believe about hell. If I can just pull together a couple of key concepts from that episode that we need to keep in mind for this episode, I can jump right in kind of in the middle of the story for this episode. So last week we talked about different terms in the Bible that get lumped into the umbrella term heaven. So there's paradise, which is like heaven's waiting room where people hung out waiting for Jesus to die so that they could go to heaven. There's heaven, which is the current abode of God and presumably where saved people go now when they die. And then there's the New Jerusalem, which is the prophesied place that does not exist yet in IFB theology, that all saved people will end up after Armageddon and the end of all things. Similarly, there are a lot of different places and concepts in the Bible that get lumped into hell. In the Old Testament, we have the term Sheol in Hebrew, and uh, which is in Greek translations of the Old Testament will be translated as will be translated into Greek as Hades, which then gets translated into English, sometimes as hell. Sometimes it gets translated as the grave or the pit and is strongly associated with where the dead people are. Sheol is not hell in the modern Christian context where bad people go when they, when they die. It is just where people go when they die. There's no connotation of punishment. We will come back to that. When Jesus talked about hell, he most often used the word Gehenna. Mm. We're going to talk about that. So there's those are two different places. We have Sheol slash Hades, and then we also have Gehenna. And then there is also a lake of fire spoken about in Revelation, which is the analogy to the New Jerusalem. Like the, the New Jerusalem is the prophesied final good place. The lake of fire is the prophesied final bad place. And in IFB theology, neither one of those exists yet. And just like we talked about with heaven, in Protestant teaching and especially biblical literalist fundamentalist Protestant teaching, all of these places often end up lumped into one thing called hell. The other thing we have to set up from the top is the concept that hell was created after the fall of Lucifer from heaven. So before God created the earth, there was this issue in heaven where God had all of these angels and one of them got a big head and thought he was better than God. and recruited one third of the other angels to fight with him and try to do a heaven coup. It didn't work out very well. God kicked him out of heaven. And that is the angel Lucifer, who we now call the devil or Satan. Well, when God kicked him out of heaven, God had to have someplace to send him. And that's hell. But then later, after God created the world, Adam and Eve sinned. And God decided that hell would also be the place where people do not go, people who do not go to heaven end up. The last absolute need to know for this episode is that the IFB teaching is that hell is a real and physical and literal place. I thought maybe we could start this episode by going deeper into the scriptures that they believe indicate that hell is in the center of the planet. So I'm sure that this is based on a very literal biblical interpretation of something. There are 
a lot of Bible verses that if you take them literally would seem to indicate that hell is in the center of the earth. One of the ones that came up most often in my research was the story of Korah from the book of Numbers, chapter 16, verse 30 through 33. In this story, Moses, uh, as, as Moses leads the Israelites on their journey uh, from Egypt to the promised land, a man named Korah came to him and told him that he felt that he was taking too much power, too much responsibility onto himself. And Korah's exact words are, you take too much onto yourself for the entire congregation are all holy and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you raise yourself above the Lord's assembly? And that is Numbers 16.3. Korah was disgruntled that Aaron, who is Moses's brother, had been chosen as the high priest. Further, uh, that Korah's cousin had been appointed as the head of his family over him. He felt that that was a role that he should have gotten. And he banded together with some 250 men, some of whom were men of ill repute and mounted an insurrection against Moses and Aaron. His argument from the verse above is the Lord is with all of us. Why do you get to be in charge? Which I think is a fair question to ask your leaders. As always, you know, you can question their authority. However, God didn't like this, and he opened up the earth and swallowed up everybody who was involved in the insurrection. And if you read the text of this, I don't really understand where the idea of hell comes from this, because there's nothing in there about eternal torture. There's nothing in there about this is the fate that awaits you when you die. This is more about God punishing those who rose up against his prophet in the physical mortal plane of existence. And as always, when I'm looking at something like this, I tend to like ask my friend who is an Orthodox rabbi. And he told me some interesting things about this. Cause I was wondering like, why, why did God decide to punish Korah for just asking a, like, he's just like, I'm just asking questions here. Right. So like, why does he deserve to get killed for that? And he told my, my friend told me a few things. He told me that he confirmed to me that this doesn't correspond to like a Christian hell, like the way that Christians think about hell, at least in the Jewish thought. And in order to find that interpretation, you have to really be sort of hunting for any place in the Hebrew Bible where somebody goes underground as punishment and then retcon mm-hmm. that into being a mention of hell. And that's right. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that he told me, I think is far more interesting because that first thing I could have probably surmised for myself. But what he told me was that uh, he told me that while Moses worshiped in exactly the same way as the other Israelites, this did not make everybody qualified for leadership, which, you know, I think is fair. But he told me that Korah and his group of rebels were not wrong for questioning Moses's leadership. As we know from the biblical narrative, Moses's leadership was not infallible. And as a result of Moses's somewhat fallible leadership, Moses never entered the promised land and neither did any of the original Israelites who left Egypt, but their children did. Korah was punished because his motivations for challenging Moses, who had successfully led the Israelites out of slavery, were selfish and self-serving rather than being made for the good of the Israelites as a whole. While he was not mad that he felt Moses was making bad decisions. He was mad that he was being passed over for leadership roles in favor of others. So his questioning wasn't coming from a good, it wasn't a good faith question. No, he was using religious language to try to advance his own leadership opportunities. 
Right. And like, you can imagine that somebody would do this, that, you know, you guys just get out of. Oh, yeah. I've never seen that happen a million times. <laughs> and, and Moses says, I picked my brother, Aaron, who, you know, was with me this whole time and, and was, you know, very instrumental in helping us get out of Egypt, go and talk to Pharaoh. Yeah. I have, I have seen this happen on bus routes, people using religious language in order to try to advance their own leadership positions. Um, The IFB interpretation of this story is that Korah's sin was questioning the man of God and that he should not have questioned his spiritual authority. And the punishment for his sin was that he was killed by God and went to a literal hell. That is an extremely IFB interpretation of this, if I do say so myself. IFB, appropriating Judaism and simultaneously disrespecting Judaism since the 1950s. If you tell the pastor that he is not allowed to molest uh, teenage girls, then that is questioning the man of God and you will get like, the ground will crack open, a sink hole will open under your house and it will get sucked in. No. Yep. I, I can see why they would say that. If you believe, okay, maybe, maybe yeah. this does have something to do with my like. I when I was a kid, <laughs> I was really, really afraid of quicksand. Um, this might have something to do with it. Now that I think about it, was that anything to do with the Princess Bride being the only movie that was like allowed in fundamentalism? No, this would have been before I saw that movie. Oh wow! So yeah. that movie must have been scary for you a little bit. Uh, yeah, a little bit. I mean, it's a good movie. It's it's a little spooky at, at times. The machine is pretty creepy, but it's funny, so it's fine. But I can see why the IFB would say that if you believe hell is like a literal real place under the earth, then of course, when God opens up the earth and sucks somebody into it who's a bad guy, of course, hell is the thing that that guy is getting sucked into. Right. However... <clears throat> This passage doesn't give evidence of a literal hell in the center of the earth. It just has that belief attached to it if you already believe in a literal hell. So them citing this passage to support that doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Like what we're going to learn in this entire episode is it's not like hell is not in the Bible. Obviously, the concept of a bad afterlife or a punishment after death, it's in there. But what we're going to learn is a lot of the specifics that the IFB believe that they know about hell is take is piecing together. Like you said, you already have a belief that hell is real and in the center of the earth. And then you go back through the Old Testament and find every time that somebody went underground for bad or punishment reasons. And then you apply that to hell. And then you say that that's the literal truth about hell. You know what I just thought of as like a analogy for this it's like if you are trying to you know show receipts on social media for like a bad interaction that like you're trying to show that somebody is a snake on social media so you send them a dm that says that they did something and they respond to your dm and don't necessarily address the claim that you said and they're just like stop sending me this this is nonsense you're crazy um then you can post that dm and say look it's proof that this thing happened because i said it in this dm to this person but you're basically just citing yourself so let's let's deconstruct this passage a little bit i'm going to actually read the pertinent verses from the king james uh numbers 16 30 to 33 But if the Lord make a new thing, and the earth open her mouth and swallow them up, with all that appertain unto them, 
and they go down quick into the pit, then ye shall understand that these men have provoked the Lord. And it came to pass, as he had made an end of speaking all these words, that the ground clave asunder that was under them, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed them up, and their houses and all the men that appertained unto Korah, and all their goods. They and all that appertained to them went down alive into the pit, and the earth closed upon them, and they perished from among the congregation. So as we would expect with this being a passage from the Old Testament, we see the phrase, the pit, twice here in verse 30 and verse 33. Uh, I checked Strong's Concordance, and the original Hebrew on both of these instances is Sheol, as we would expect. If you believe, based on the New Testament, that there is a literal hell, it makes sense to conflate these two things, but the fact is that isn't what scripture says. Um, when the verse says they go down quick into the pit, quick means alive in this particular usage um, in King James English. So a more faithful interpretation of what the scripture actually says might be they were killed so quickly that they were still alive when they arrived in the realm of the dead based on verse 33, went down alive into the pit. And this is a usage that is, this concept of they were still alive when they found out they were dead is elsewhere in the Old Testament. I didn't take up the time, take the time to look up the reference, um, but there is a Old Testament verse about somebody who woke up dead. So this idea of like, they were killed so quickly that they didn't know what hit them being phrased as they were still alive when they died Th this tracks based on other usage in the Old Testament. So I, I think a better interpretation would be they were killed so quickly that they were still alive when they showed up in the realm of the dead. I want to check out, but but yeah, like as you said, Gabi, there's no connotation of eternal conscious torment or no. anything similar, or even this being like a permanent punishment for their, you know, it's like they died. That's the punishment. They got swallowed up by the earth. That's the punishment. It doesn't say anything further about a punishment beyond they died. Was this one of the scenes in the burning hell? That I got, think so. Yeah, this is like one of the one, one of the intro scenes. Yeah, where they had Moses with a southern accent. Yes, <laughs> y'all go down in the pit. You hear? <laughs> If you rise up to challenge me, this is the war of Corin aggression, and God will swallow you up into the pit, just like my daddy did with that alligator. The pit. The pit. <laughs> so let's check out a few other passages that are used to quote unquote prove that hell is in the center of the earth. And because as we do so, we're going to develop our understanding of what exactly Sheol is as well, because it turns out that's actually really important to the whole story. Isaiah 14.9 says, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It hath raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. So again, with Strong's Concordance, I checked this one. Hell is the Hebrew Sheol. So this concept, this verse actually supports the concept that Sheol is the place where all the dead people are. Because Isaiah is not saying all the bad dead people have come back. Isaiah is saying all the dead people have come back to meet you. So not only does this verse not prove that hell is in the center of the earth, it also supports this concept of Sheol, which is not I've Behel. 
I'm going to stay in Isaiah chapter 14 because just shortly after that verse, we get a passage directly addressed to Satan in verse 12 and 12 through 15. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Uh, any ghost fans out there may have just caught the reference in year zero. So I hope you're enjoying that along with me. This passage talks about Lucifer falling from heaven. And it is with a passage from Ezekiel, the canon on who Satan was and how he got to where he is now. In verse 15, we see something interesting linguistically because we get hell and the pit in English in the same sentence. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. So number one, this verse is making a direct equivalence between hell and the pit. And hmm. somebody who really wants hell to be the pit and also be Sheol and also be in the center of the earth might get really excited about that and say, hey, look, here's proof in the scripture. Hell and the pit are the same place. That is where Korah got sucked down to. Hell, the pit. So if you made that assumption, you would be right that hell and the pit are the same thing based on this verse. That is what this verse is telling us. Um, usually in the KJV, when we read the pit, the original Hebrew is Sheol. But in this particular verse, Sheol is the word that's used for hell in the first half of that sentence. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. So what is the original Hebrew that is translated as the pit if Sheol has already been used in the first half of that sentence? The original Hebrew translated as the pit is bor. Bor literally means a pit. It has the connotation of a remote place far away. But it's also used in other parts of the Bible to mean a cistern, a well, a dungeon, or a cooking pit. The Message Bible renders this verse as, Instead of climbing up, you came down, down with the underground dead, down to the abyss of the pit. Forgive my arrogance to presume myself a scriptural translator once again, but if there were a Sadie International version of the scripture, this verse might read, Thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of that big hole over there. So these two verses kind of got me into the weeds of what exactly is this pit that we keep on talking about. There are 65 total uses of the word Sheol in scripture. All 65 are in the Old Testament. 31 are translated as hell. 31 are translated as grave. And then three more are translated as the pit. Two of those mentions of the pit are in Numbers chapter 16, the Korah story that we just read. An example of the use of Sheol to mean the grave would be Genesis 37-35. So in this passage, Jacob's son Joseph has been sold to Egypt by his brothers, but Jacob is under the impression that his son has been killed. In King James, this verse reads, and all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. The grave in that verse is translated from the same Hebrew word, Sheol. And of course, 
nobody is arguing that Patriarch Jacob was expecting to go to hell. Uh, Dante is. Except for Dante. He was very <laughs> clearly speaking. Like, what is he saying? For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. He's saying, I'm going to die from grief. Or possibly, I'm going to grieve for my son until I die. But when when Jacob uses the word Sheol in Hebrew, which is translated as the grave in English, he is literally speaking about death, the grave. I'm going to die from grief or I'm going to grieve for my son until I am dead. Another mention, an, another place where Sheol is translated in, in English as the grave is Song of Solomon 8, 6. Uh, jealousy is as cruel as the grave, which is, a, I think, a, a, one of those scripture verses that people quote without realizing it. The grave in Song of Solomon 8, 6 is also a use of Sheol. So jealousy is as cruel as the grave, as cruel as death. Um, in conclusion of this very nerdy, nerdy section about the root word Sheol and what it actually meant in the New Testament, it can in some instances have a meaning that has a passing similarity to Christian hell in the sense that it is where the dead people are. It is the underworld. But Sheol is not Christian hell. I would have loved to go through every all 65 appearances of this word in the Old Testament, but I feel like I've made my point. This, uh, in fact, does mean that Christian hell does not appear in the Old Testament, which may not surprise our listeners, but I'm sure that there are people out there who would be pretty shocked by that. So Estes Perkle of Burning Hell fame, his claim that hell is mentioned in the Old and New Testament is wrong? Yes, um, I'm very sorry that it took me a year to inform you of this. <laughs> I just can't believe that I was lied to by a low-budget Christian movie. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that's never happened before. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. But, <laughs> <laughs> but in all seriousness, I, I really hope I'm making sense here, uh, because in the Old Testament, there is this concept that is slightly similar to Christian hell. Sheol and hell have some things in common. Like there's a place that people go when they die and it may or may not be down under our feet in the middle of the planet somewhere. <clears throat> and it's not, you know, really a good place or a pleasant place. But to be as clear as I can, the, con the Old Testament concept of Sheol is missing several key components of Christian hell. Some of the components that it is missing would be fire, torture, punishment, shame, separation from God, and perhaps most importantly, being permanent, being forever. All of those things are missing from every Old Testament reference to Sheol, whether it is translated in English as hell or as the grave or as the pit. New Testament passages about hell being under the earth are what I would call nothing new Compared to the Old Testament passages, it's nothing that shows up in the New Testament that didn't already show up in the Old Testament. They're also not as explicit as the Old Testament passages, specifically referring to being under the earth because they are not using the Hebrew word sheol. Uh, words that get translated as hell in the New Testament is usually going to be either Hades or Gehenna, and we're going to get into both of those in a minute. A quick example of a under the earth verse from the New Testament would be Revelation 5 3. 
And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Under the earth here from the Greek, it very literally translated under the earth. The Greek word used for earth has the connotation of the physical land on the planet earth. It is the same Greek word used in other places in the New Testament in the phrases salt of the earth, on earth as it is in heaven, and whatsoever you bind on earth. So that it is very literally no man under no no man under the earth was able to open the book. It's not explicitly referencing hell or an underworld or an afterlife. So I think it would be safe to say that the Bible lightly implies that hell might be under the earth. Um, it just doesn't literally say that. I can imagine, though, why they would, especially because if you consider the potential influence of Greek mythology at this point, because Hades, the god of the dead, is the ruler of the underworld, and the Jewish god resides in heaven, and the Greek gods reside in Mount Olympus, both you know high and, and lofty places. And when God comes down to earth, it's like a pillar of light coming down to earth. That's, that's sort like of from how it's the sky. Yeah. Yes. So it, it would make sense that if God's up here, then the dead, you know, the, it's, the underworld, it's the opposite of that. And also, we know this that, and, and, Christian and Christianity in the the New Testament freely admits this that they were intentionally taking aspects from uh Greek and, and Roman mythology in their polytheistic religions to say well you know this is the new god the god of the Hebrews and it's the strongest god of all this is the unknown god that you guys have the temple to mm -hmm. this is yeah we know the unknown god Yes, and so it makes perfect sense that there would be such a cross-pollination that these cultures would have an influence on one another. It, it just, I find it so ironic that the fundies, the biblical literalists' beliefs on the afterlife are not entirely from the Bible, and they're so heavily influenced by polytheistic paganism. Yeah, there's actually one place in the New Testament that a Greek word for the afterlife other than Hades is used and translated as hell. The verse is mm. 2 Peter 2, 4. God spared not angels when they sinned, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. The Greek for that is Tartarosus or Tartarus, uh, which is a reference to Homer, potentially, it is literally a hmm. a Greek mythology concept of hell or Hades. That's fascinating. And the literal word Hades is used many times, and I'm going to get to that, but Tartarus is used, um, which is very literally referencing a Greek mythological place, not a Christian mythological place. I thought that Tartarus was the bad guy in Halo 2. That's probably where they got the name. <laughs> yeah, that's probably where they. He's an alien. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was, and I believe that is, if I'm not misreading, that is the only word translated as hell in the New Testament that is not Gehenna or Hades. And it's only used in that one place. But I thought that was kind of interesting. I just had to re-Google it because I know it's in my sources somewhere, but I've closed the tab. No, but that's so fascinating. That's totally evidence of what we've been saying. That Yeah. Wow. Like, 
yeah, none of this proves like you can't like we were talking about in the microphone to hell episode. You can't prove a negative um, 99.9% of the time. I mean, we got pretty close. Although you can, although you can sometimes get very close. Um, <laughs> and we obviously cannot prove on this podcast that hell doesn't exist because we are not everywhere, um, nor do we have special divine knowledge. Uh, and we've never been there. And, you know, we can't prove that, but I think we can show that what the Bible says about hell is not as cut and dried as people would have you believe when they want to scare you. So we have to move on to some other fundamentalist beliefs about hell. Last week, we learned that a lot of what the IFB believes about heaven isn't directly from Jesus. Jesus spoke about his father's house, heaven, as in the abode of God, where God lives, a ton. So Jesus talked a lot about, this is where I am going. I'm going to my father's house and you can come too. He talked about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, but neither one of those things are heaven, heaven, where we like to think good people or saved people go when they die. All of the streets of gold, gates of pearl, the idea of having material possessions and rewards comes from other sources, including apostolic writings, non-canonical writings, church tradition, and the IFB's capitalistic imagination. One of the big things that we learned last week is that Jesus and the apostles' concepts of heaven were influenced by Jewish thought about heaven, influenced by Greek thought about the afterlife, and especially influenced by a lot of mystics and visionaries and non-canonical Christian writings. Talking about hell is very similar in some ways, because Sheol in the Old Testament is, like Christian views of heaven, highly influenced by Jew Jewish thought before and during the time of Jesus. But talking about hell in relation to Jesus's actual words is very different because Jesus was very vague about heaven, but he was a lot more descriptive about hell. Streets of gold, gates of pearl, that did not come from Jesus, but a lot of the physical descriptors of hell did. So we're going to get into that. I had a thought on this. I don't know if it's like the child of my sleep deprived sleep deprived deprivation addled brain but i would like to hear your thoughts on something go for it so uh, last week i spoke about how bizarre i think it is that heaven would be a place of material pleasure because in my personal view closeness with god is not exactly congruent or in alignment with materialistic pursuits for the same reason I feel like if a place like hell were to exist, it would make sense for me that it would be a place of material torment because the behavior that gets you sent there is mostly motivated by materialistic and tangible and worldly desires, greed, possessiveness, abusive, controlling behavior, those sort of material materially motivated behaviors. It seems almost poetic to me that hell would be that type of place because it would be a you get what you ask for kind of poetic justice almost i don't want to mm -hmm. call it poetic justice because i think eternal torture is not necessarily a justice thing at all yeah i'm with you there <laughs> you're really spot on with that because the ancient jewish view of heaven was not particularly materialistic the ancient jewish view of hell so not talking about anything approaching modern Judaism, but the view that would have been popular 
in vogue around the time of Jesus, it did lean slightly more into physical discomforts or even physical punishment. Although the Jewish views do not go as far as the Christian view where we go way past discomfort and punishment into straight up torture forever and ever and ever. I personally can't say much about the Jewish beliefs about hell because I didn't grow up being taught beliefs about hell at all. I didn't grow up believing in it at all. And I think that if you asked most Jews, at least, I don't want to say most Jews because I, I haven't talked to most of them, um, but I think that a lot of people with my similar background, if you ask them if they believe in hell, they would say no. Because I grew up sort of believing that hell was like a tool that George Bush used to trick Americans into voting for tax cuts for oil companies. So, I mean, that's, that's literally what I thought hell was when I was like 10 or 11 or 12. I did a lot of looking into the Jewish beliefs on hell, and they it seems to be kind of purgatory-based. Actually, the we're going to talk about some alternative Christian thoughts on hell at the very end of this episode, and Jewish hell is most similar to the modern Christian theory of relational hell. I guess I'm going to spoil my ending, but relational hell is um, if you harmed a lot of people in this life before you can find peace or enter any kind of paradise, you have to confront the harms that you did to other people. And there are a lot of different conceptions of what physically Jewish hell might look like or how it metaphysically might or might not work. But the basic idea is you confront the harms that you did to other people. It's not punishment. It's not torture. It's experiencing the hurt that you caused others. And there are a lot of ideas on what that might look like. Um, whether you're living the lives of people that you hurt in a simulation or whether you are in your own body experiencing the same pain that you inflicted on other people, whatever it means, you are experiencing those harms in a very real way so that you can repent for them. And it's the repentance that cleanses your soul and gets you into paradise. It's not the punishment or the pain that you suffer in the process of finding that repentance. That is pretty similar to the Christian view of relational hell. And it definitely has some influence over the Christian idea of purgatory, the Catholic idea of purgatory. I read an article um, on jewsforjudaism.org, uh, <laughs> which is a website name that I really love. Um, it is So Jews for Judaism is a organization that was founded to <laughs> combat Jews for Jesus stuff. <laughs> um, I saw that website when you posted it in the doc and I'm like, is this a real website? It is. It's, <laughs> actually, it's pretty cool. But a, a quote, a, a lot of it of Jewish heaven and hell seems to be focused on your motivations for what you do on earth. And I found a really neat story on there that I thought was worth reading. A story is told of a Jew who gave away his portion in the world to come in order to rescue a kidnapped family being held for ransom. When asked why he was not sad over losing his place in heaven, he responded, I was always concerned that I was serving God for the wrong reasons. Now that I don't have a portion in the world to come, I can serve him reassured that I am doing it purely out of love and devotion. Interesting. Huh. So a lot, a lot of the Jewish thought on heaven and hell, it's not there isn't a good place or there isn't a bad place or you it's not 
but it's it's this is about more than whether you end up in the good place or the bad place. This is way more about what do you do on earth and why? I mean, it, when you said the good, like that TV show was, is very heavily based on ideas for the afterlife. And there's portions of the show that are specifically based on this story. There's the one plot line where Eleanor knows that there's no way that she can act, get into the real good place. And so all of the things that she's doing, she knows that she is doing for the right motivations because she knows that she can't get in there no matter what, but maybe she can help other people. Yes. And then the fact that she has begun to do things truly for the right reasons for the first time in her life changes who she is as a person. The Jewish view on hell that I think a lot of the, a lot of the beliefs about the Jewish view of hell come from scholars who lived hundreds or even thousands of years ago. And I grew up in a Judaism that is a, that was in a post Holocaust world. And the Jewish view on hell that I was very much taught was in line with hell is real and it exists on earth. I like, I went to very limited amounts of Hebrew school when I was a kid growing up. And, but there was a kid that was in my class. Um, and I don't even remember his name, but his grandfather was a Holocaust survivor and he came in and he talked to us one day. I think I was probably in like second or third grade and he didn't sugarcoat like anything at all. And I think one of my classmates asked him if he thought like he, if, if he thought the Nazis were in hell now, who he asked something like that. This old man, he must have been in like his 70s probably. Uh, he said that he didn't think hell was real because it can't have been worse than what he went through. And that was very interesting to me. To, and that was very sort of a, a jarring experience for me when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And I think that a lot of, because a lot of modern Jewish thought, a lot of it isn't necessarily based on, a, a lot of it is also kind of based on secular humanism. So like some of the more modern thought, Jewish thought movements, I guess. Mm -hmm. And that's very much an idea that's in line with secular humanism is that, you know, if, if there is hell, then it is real and it exists on earth. I will tell you the idea like hell is real and it exists on earth is the belief of some Christians as well, because there are two ways that you can look at that. You can look at that as like, this is hell. This is already us atoning for our sins in real time because we hurt each other as human beings. And that is both the sin and the atonement for the sin. Also, though, some Christians would say, and I forgot to look up the theological term for this one, but some Christians will say, we are currently separated from the presence of God. And the essence of hell is not the torture, it is the separation from the presence of God. And right now we are on earth and God is not here. So we are separated from God, therefore we are now in hell. So that is a view that can also pop up in Christianity. Well, that was the view of the bikers in the burning hell. And Estes mm -hmm. Perkle had to put their put them right where and then they're like, Right, we don't by telling them you. that hell is in the old and new testaments. <laughs> it's not. Another Christian view of the way that Jesus talked about hell that ties in with that really well is some Christians believe that Jesus was exaggerating when he talked about a furnace of fire and horrible tortures and the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched, all this stuff. Um, that 
Jesus was using hyperbolic language because what could you possibly describe that is worse than what humans endure every day on earth? So it was purposely hyperbolic to express, try to be a good person and don't go to the bad afterlife. I think the thing to know is that the Jewish view of hell and the Christian view were very similar for a minute, right at the start of Christianity for a hundred years or 200 years. But the Christian view evolved to be more and more literal and the Jewish view evolved to be less and less literal. So just there was a convergence just right at that moment where the two views were very similar. But I do think that the Christian view was heavily influenced by the Jewish view back in the day before, you know, these they started evolving in very different directions. I did reference the Apocalypse of Peter in last week's episode. The Apocalypse of Peter is a very early apocryphal Christian work. It is heavily influenced by the Greek catabasis. So it is an explanation and elaboration on the different parts of the afterlife. Interestingly, this writing, the Apocalypse of Peter, was accepted as scripture around 175 to 200 CE by the early Christian church. We have letters from early Christian leaders where they talk about what writings they are accepting currently as scripture and what they are not. And of course, at this time, the early Christian church, as evidenced by huge pieces of Paul's writing, was still trying to figure out exactly where Judaism ended and they began. So the Apocalypse of Peter has some interesting views on torture. It laid out specific punishments for specific sins on earth. For example, blasphemers were hanged by their tongues. Liars had their lips cut off. Um, I'm trying to be very careful what examples I choose because some of these are really, really gory. There, are, if you want, if you want to look it up, feel free. <laughs> I tried to choose the least bad. No, thank you. A fascinating side note is that the Apocalypse of Peter, which again was accepted by large parts of the early church, as far as we know, did not teach eternal suffering in hell. The Apocalypse of Peter taught that after a time of punishment via torture that correlated to the severity of one's sins, the sinner suffering in hell could cry out to God for mercy. And when they had suffered enough, God would give them mercy. The sinner would still not be able to enter heaven, but God prepared a neutral place for those who had received mercy after suffering enough in hell. So, Mindy St. Clair and the Medium Place barely escaped being scriptural canon. <laughs> Seriously, 100%. Oh. This is so fascinating. You know, I, and I know that you haven't been able to watch this show again since you know your, your father died. Or I don't know if you have. Have you? I have not. I really, really want to. I would love to, maybe for Patreon content, we'll do like a rewatch. But seriously, seriously, the Apocalypse of Peter taught that you suffer enough and then God lets you out of hell. And some people call this neutral place the Elysian Fields. That's one way that you might see it referred to. That's going to get really interesting when we get into what Jesus said about hell. 
All of this to say that the idea of some kind of physical punishment or physical atonement in hell was not out of the ordinary for Jewish thought around the time of Jesus. And Jesus is still doing exactly what we were talking about last week. He is yes anding the common ideas of the time. He is uh, not coming to erase all of that and start over. He's elaborating on these common ideas. And one of the big things that Jesus did or changed was to make hell seem a lot worse than the common thought at the time. It is kind of funny to me because like, so this stuff is for sure not in the Bible, but it does get lassoed into Christianity because it was kind of like the thought at the time. It's kind of like how when people are making music, they'll use sounds that replicate the sounds that were you know technical and cutting edge when they came out like if you listen to music now there's a lot of like throwback to sounds from the 1980s like synth sounds and guitar sounds and and drum sounds that were popular in the 1980s because that was a time when those sounds were cutting edge and they want to be evocative of that era but then they'll do them now with new technology it's sort of like that it's sort of like also like how everybody in the ifb dresses like it's 1991 because that was mm -hmm. when their heyday was. So I'm going to speed run some of the things that Jesus said as physical descriptions of hell. Heads up, there are a lot of the really triggering verses are going to be in here. I am going somewhere with this, but just be aware. So I'm going to just, I'm going to run through a whole bunch of these. Okay. Mark chapter nine, verse 43 and 44. And if thy hand offend thee, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. I remember this line. This was one of the lines that Stephen Anderson and Peter Ruckman had a whole beef over. That vaguely rings a bell, but I can't remember what the beef was over. Right. It was because P Peter Ruckman claimed that the word worm in this verse actually meant soul and Stephen anderson took issue with that and i looked up the like this verse in every translation that i could find and every translation i found worm means worm and not soul so i don't know yeah i remember that now i checked in a greek lexicon for this one the word translated as worm is skolex s-k-o-l-e-x is the anglicized um spelling the literal translation was a gnawing worm a gnawing anguish and the word scolakes has been used in science as the, it, it became the scientific name of some actual literal worm. The same concept of it's better to cut off your hand, foot, whatever, than go to hell also appears in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. But that specific phrase, the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, only appears in Mark chapter 9 and not in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. So was Steven Anderson arguing in bad faith when he was saying that the Ruckman was making a point or was he saying that Ruckman was making a point that Ruckman wasn't actually making or No, Ruckman was just straight up making things up again. I guess dub for Steven Anderson but also never dub for Steven Anderson because <laughs> yeah. Um just <sighs> Interesting fact, the typical IFB interpretation of that verse is that there are giant worms who eat you in hell. I would have that that doesn't make sense like if he says go into hell or like go into because part of the thought of Jewish 
like like Jewish thought is that your soul sort of like after you die, your soul sort of like stays in your body for a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that your body would go into a great like and the idea is that they're supposed to bury you as quickly as possible, like within 24 hours of when you die. And so the idea that worms would be eating your body is literally a thought that you would have about what physically happens to your body. So, right. And in Jewish thought, that's something the soul would experience on some level as the, <clears throat> as the physical vessel of a person decays before the soul moves on to wherever it's going next. Yes, exactly. So that, I mean, that interpretation of that makes a lot more sense than the IFB's interpretation that, oh, it's like uh, <laughs> the graboids in Tremors are actually down there in hell. And we've got to, you know, like on, on like the sci-fi channel has got to. Yeah, we had IFB preachers showing us pictures of like deep sea animal, like creepy deep sea animals and saying this is probably the worm that eats you in hell. Oh, yeah, because it came up through like the Marianas Trench where they sent the submarine right. down to at the beginning or in the in, in the core when they were trying to send people down into the. the right. Core but the, the, the literal translation of, of Skolix is a gnawing worm or a gnawing anguish and where your anguish dieth not, where you are in pain and can't die in, in even in the IFB sense would be considerably more literal than there are giant worms who eat you <laughs> and this is what you get when you believe king james version was verbally inspired and preserved <sighs> okay so we're gonna go back let's go back into stuff that jesus said about hell uh matthew twenty five thirty, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth this is often referenced as a verse about hell it's a little bit odd because this verse comes in the middle of a parable. Jesus is telling a story that is not particularly religious. It's not a religious story. It's a secular story that Christians would believe he is using to illustrate a moral or religious point. But outer darkness in this verse is very literally in the Greek, outer darkness. There is not a connotation in the Greek of hell that doesn't show up in the English. Outer darkness is a... I believe a part of the Mormon afterlife where if you are raised in the church and then you just, and you decide to leave the church, then when you die, outer darkness is where you go. Uh huh. And I know that because Heather said it on real housewives of salt Lake city when she was talking about her deconstruction journey. So the, the IFB interpretation of this verse is that hell is dark and they will go into a scientific proof of this. Um, the IFB told me that like colder, fire is yellow or orange but really really hot flame can be blue and that if you have a gas stove you can see that um if you ever used a blowtorch but they will go on to say that the darkest or the hottest flame possible is actually black so in hell it is pitch dark and you can't see anything but that's how it's on fire and also dark i don't actually know if that's true do you want to deconstruct in real time yeah let's find that uh I think that might be true because I've seen like there, there is, I mean, there are also like some elements that burn and they don't give off light when they burn. I, I mean, you didn't have real, uh, chemistry class, but no, one I of had the, it on video. Yeah. In, in chemistry class, one of the lab experiments that we did was we had like Bunsen burners and we had to burn different things on the Bunsen burners and 
uh, write down what color fire came out when we burn. Like in one, like I think if you burn sodium, it's green, and if you burn other elements, they're blue. If you burn other elements, they're orange and they're pink and they're purple and stuff. And that's how they make fireworks: is they put different elements in there that burn at different colors. So it seems like the hottest fire being black is not coming up for me online. Like blue flames are hotter than orange flames. That's true. And fire can be as dark as violet, which is maybe possible. Um, but black is not coming up for me anywhere. Um, um there there is invisible fire. You, I think that right, you can make, burns invisibly. Right, but that is because you can make a black flame by burning certain chemicals. But it's not the flame that is black. It is the chemicals that are making it black. Yeah. No, it says here that methanol fire is invisible. So, and and black isn't, I don't want to say black isn't a color because black is a color, but like if something is appearing black, it just means that it isn't emitting or reflecting light. So right. a black fire and an invisible fire would be basically the same thing. So hell is burning methanol because when your soul sends it farts and it's burning all the farts is that what this is no that's uh it's it's that's not methanol Meth that's isn't, methanol? Uh, isn't it isn't cow farts no, that's methanol? Methane. Oh. That's methane methanol is the thing that when you drink moonshine it turns you blind oh yeah see i knew it was not necessarily a great thing that's why bootleggers go to hell <laughs> right Anyway, uh, next thing that Jesus said about hell, Matthew 25, 46. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Uh, everlasting punishment is actually a pretty um, important verse because of reasons I'm about to explain. Uh, Matthew 13, 42 the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. The literal translation on furnace of fire is, so furnace is oven or kiln. The, there is a definite article, the, so furnace of the fire. Um, and the word for fire is pyros. Um, with the definite article the pyros means eternal fire or the fire of the sun because the the article makes pyros refer to the sun and not just any fire if i'm understanding this greek correctly matthew 10 28 and fear not them which kill the body but are not able to kill the soul rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell hell in matthew 10 28 is gehenna and then we're finishing up with matthew 5 22 but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Uh, hellfire in this verse combines the word Gehenna and the word Pyros, Ganon to Pyros. Um, so it is Gehenna of the sun or Gehenna fire. So there are references to something that really does sound like a burning hell filled with fire and like demons, if you interpret these things as literal and not metaphorical. Yeah. Um, so the IFB interpretation of all this is that hell is a real place. There are worms that eat you. It is full of fire that burns forever and you will be 
punished forever, consciously tortured physically and spiritually by the devil in hell. Please note, the presence of Lucifer in hell does not show up in Jesus's words. That goes back to the verses in Isaiah and Ezekiel that we were reading earlier. I mean, but once again, it, it, I mean, to me, the inclusion of worms really makes it seem even less like the passage would be talking about what happens to your soul afterwards. It more seems like this is literally what will happen to your body after you die. When you go, when you die, are you good with the person that you've been? When the worms are eating your body, are you good with the person that you've been? Mm-hmm. Which, not to get on my high horse, but I find that so much more helpful in the in the pursuit of being a good f- human than I do the threat of hell. Because if you tell somebody, well, if you're saved, you go to heaven, and if you're not saved, you go to hell, and you're good works don't get you into heaven and they won't keep you out of hell it's all about being saved it that's not very motivating to them being a good person if you tell somebody one day you're gonna die are you gonna be cool with your actions on earth or are you gonna have a lot of regrets to me that motivates me a lot more to think about my actions and try to be a better person that's just me and so it may interest you to know that Jesus made some direct references to a concept more similar to the Old Testament concept, Sheol. So yes, Jesus did reference a good afterlife in the presence of God and a bad afterlife with torture and everlasting fire. However, in speaking about the last days, Jesus said in John 5, 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming, in the which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. I looked up the graves. In original Greek, the word is nemeos, which very literally means the tombs. So in this case, the KJV has a good literal translation. That strikes me as Jesus referencing Sheol because he doesn't say all the people in heaven and all the people in hell shall hear his voice talking about the last days. He said all that are in the graves. So to me, this seems like a phrase from Jesus that supports the concept of the underworld or the waiting room for all souls. Jesus also references Hades, which is almost identical to the concept of Sheol, like the underworld, the underground where the dead people are, but we're going to get to that. I read a bunch of verses. Every place in the verses that I just read that Jesus's words are translated as hell, what he said in the original Greek is Gehenna. So first we have to talk about what is Gehenna. Gehenna is actually a real historical location. Gehenna was a place just outside of Jerusalem that was in the past associated with human sacrifice. And because of that, it was considered to be a cursed and evil place. So the residents of Jerusalem thought, what are we going to do with this cursed land that we can't do anything else with? So they made it into a trash pile. They burned their garbage there. So Gehenna is 100% literally the perpetual garbage fire. The literal interpretation is you deserve to be thrown into that burning trash fire. And I'm not glibly disputing that Gehenna was kind of a euphemism for hell at the time. I don't want to overdo my joking, but I am saying that Jesus did not literally say hell. I'm not trying to tell you, you are wrong to think that Jesus is kind of sideways referencing a punishment for the unrighteous. 
But I am telling you that taking this as a literal eternal conscious torment for every unrighteous soul is kind of a big reach. Yeah, it seems to me more that referring to the trash heap along is is more along the lines of calling something a dumpster fire than it is to saying this is a physical place of conscious torment for all eternity. Your life and your soul are a dumpster fire, not the same as you will be tortured forever. So here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say that individual people will be tortured in hell forever. It might sound like he did. Jesus says the fire, the punishment are eternal. Let's look back at those words. Everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Uh, There's another one where the worm dieth not, the fire is not quenched. Uh, There was another one about the furnace of fire. Jesus says the fire is eternal. He does not say that an individual person's experience in the fire is forever. Think about it this way. If you are a piece of trash and you get thrown into the incinerator, the burning garbage pile, once you're burned, you're burned. That doesn't mean the fire goes out. The fire can be burning other trash, the next pieces of trash that need to be burned. Or the fire may have an external fuel source. Do you get what I'm saying here? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Jesus says that the fire is eternal, but nowhere does it say that the individual soul's punishment is eternal. Even in Matthew 25, 46, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal is a little bit ambiguous. So one way of interpreting this, of course, would be that the soul will be punished forever. If you die and go to heaven, you live in paradise forever. If you die and go to hell, you live in torture and horrible things forever. You could also read this verse, though, and these shall go away into the punishment that is everlasting. Like the punishment is ongoing and never ends, but an individual's punishment could be temporary or finite. The idea that your soul is eternally yours is also not really a Jewish idea. For us, souls are all a piece of the divine that is only ever belonging to us temporarily. Like you, so you know what this actually reminds me of more than it reminds me of anything in Judaism. What's that? The doctrine of eternal marriage that's in Mormonism. And I also remembered this because I've been marathoning Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Yeah, and that actually comes back to Jesus as well because somebody asked Jesus, somebody was trying to trip him up and get him to say something shocking. Basically, they were trying to cancel Jesus. Um, And they asked him if somebody was married more than one time on earth, which spouse will be their spouse in heaven. And Jesus said, none of them, because there's no marrying or giving in marriage in heaven. It is weird to me that you would be in your body and tortured for eternity, because for us, it's not even clear that you're going to be your your soul is going to be residing within anything that's resembling a body after you die it gets very complicated in the new testament because there are references to so when you die your physical body goes back to the earth but when jesus like when the rapture happens we all get it's not sanctified bodies we get a different kind. So if you were alive when the rapture happens, you get your physical body, but transformed to be sinless. And then after Armageddon, um, we all get 
if you're alive when the rapture comes, you get your own physical body that disappears from the earth, but it gets transformed to be sinless. If you are dead and you were saved when the rapture comes, you get a resurrected body. And then after Armageddon, all the people who were alive when the rapture came and got raptured also get resurrected bodies. And your resurrected body is the same as the body that Jesus currently resides in after his crucifixion, death, and resurrection. And that's the body that you get to keep forever. There are a lot of theories on what that means for people who went to hell, but they kind of believe that like your the most typical IFB belief would be that your physical body decays, but you get a new body that is capable of withstanding hell forever. Wow. <laughs> that's I mean, that is <laughs> so I, it's, it's, it's so convoluted, but like that is I could hear your facial expression. I'm don't no, like and i and i know that a lot of christians really truly and deeply believe this but i i just don't like if like if i ask is this belief biblical it's it's more like this is the way that the system has to work in order for these things that it says to right be in the and Bible. there are true the ver so okay. the whole like resurrected body thing it comes from all over the New Testament, just like a verse here in Second Thessalonians, and then there's this other one in Corinthians, and then there's this other one in Revelation. And you put them all together, and when you put the puzzle pieces together, it kind of looks like that's the answer. And what I would encourage people is, you know, if you need to make the whole system work in your mind in order for it to work, that's fine. But this is not nearly as important, again, as what you actually do on Earth. So we talked about Gehenna, that trash heap over there. Other places that Jesus referenced hell, when he did not use the word Gehenna, he always used the word Hades. Uh, Jesus speaking the word Hades shows up in Matthew 16, 18. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It also shows up in Luke 10, 15, Luke 16, 23, Matthew eleven twenty three, among others. What really stood out to me is that Jesus always said Gehenna when talking about a personal punishment for an individual soul. And he always used Hades when talking about a corporate punishment or like the concept of hell, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's another one where he said something about Capernaum is going to be punished in hell and that he used Hades. We need to go take up the offering. When we get back, we're going to keep on having a hell of a time talking about hell. And I'm going to talk about what I think is the most interesting use of Hades by Jesus. Fantastic. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hey, Sadie here. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode 57. It's a primer episode for new listeners. That episode tells my personal story and gives you all the terms and information that you'll need to know going forward. Also, check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism, so that you can get the whole cult story. If you like our show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes, as well as other bonus content available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, That group is called Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. We are back from our break. We are talking about hell, 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 the highway to hell, the path to hell that we're all on, and how we're all going to go there when we die, so you better get right with Jesus now. Isn't that right, Sadie? Yes. (laughs) So, this is where (laughs) I... (laughs) This is where, sorry, this is a hard part of the episode for me because I have to talk about the rich man and Lazarus, but the rich man and Lazarus is a weird story. And I originally wrote it to be here in the hell episode. And then I took it out of this episode and put it back in the heaven episode. And then I couldn't find a good place for it in the heaven episode either. So I moved it back to this episode. (laughs) Because it was giving me problems. So I just kind of stuck it here after the offering break. The rich man and Lazarus is the story that was portrayed in the burning hell where it was the guy with uh-huh. the, the 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 puff balls, like the black puff balls. The, the, the worst green beard of all time. Yes, that's a like a, a, a circle parka, but like with no hood on it. It was uh, yeah. fantastic. So here's the story. There was a rich man and there was a beggar named Lazarus who hung out near his gate. The rich man scorned Lazarus and didn't want to help him. Both the rich man and Lazarus died. Lazarus was carried by angels to Abraham's bosom, which is paradise. It's heaven's waiting room, the good side of Sheol. And the rich man ended up in the bad side of Sheol because he was not a good guy. There is a great separation between the two sides of this waiting room. The rich man could see across this great separation, this great divide, Abraham and Lazarus together hanging out, being buds, having a pretty decent time for being in a waiting room. The rich man begged Abraham to send Lazarus just to dip his finger in water, to give him a drop of water. And Abraham said, no, you got what you deserved. Also, this separation is so great that nobody can cross it anyway. So the rich man begs Abraham to send Lazarus back to warn his family about hell. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The rich man says, well, if somebody came back from the dead, then they would listen. And Abraham replies, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, someone coming back from the dead is not going to change their mind. So that's the basic story. This is used for a lot of IFB beliefs about hell. Um, most notably, the IFB believes that this confirms the fire in hell because the rich man was so thirsty that he just wanted some water. But this is a parable, and it is a really tough parable to deal with because generally when Jesus speaks in parables, when he is telling a story, the general Christian thought is if Jesus uses someone's name, it's a true story that really happened. And we are supposed to digest the information that is given in the story in that context. And we generally assume if Jesus does not give a name for a person in a parable, 
that he is telling a fictional story to make a point. So the um, the Wait. parable. So it's this like. What if he, Jesus uses a fake name? What if Jesus says, this is a real thing that happened, but I can't use the guy's actual name? Jesus never did that, which is why we don't have to do a Paul Sand. <laughs> that was my um, thought. <laughs> but an example where Jesus does not use any names is the parable of the prodigal son. Um, if you read back that story, Jesus doesn't, the, the father doesn't have a name, the good son doesn't have a name, the prodigal son doesn't have a name multiple different parables about like the rich man and the talents nobody in that story has a name uh the rich boss who wrote off a debt for his employee nobody in that story has a name and when jesus uses these parables where nobody is a named character we typically in christian teachings assume that Jesus wanted us to assume, Jesus wanted us to get that this is a made up story and to focus on the point of the story, the moral of the story. What was he trying to tell us? And when Jesus gives characters names in a parable, we are supposed to take it a little bit more literally. However, this is, this is a weird one because there are a lot of other indications in the text that this is a fictional parable. So if this one was meant to be fictional. It would be the only parable that was fictional where Jesus added names. But if it's not fictional, then we have to take this story pretty seriously when we are talking about the afterlife. It doesn't help that in this story, Jesus does not give us any interpretation at all. Jesus does not take questions from the apostles or the disciples. Jesus tells the story and moves on to the next thing that he's trying to say. Um, so that would lead us back into thinking that this is a fictional made-up story and he's trying to just get us to get the point. And a lot of Christians think the point is the obvious point right at the end of the story. Abraham says, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, someone coming back from the dead isn't going to change their mind. And a lot of Christians think this is a pretty obvious point. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, I'm going to raise from the dead, and they're not going to believe me either, which is the kind of the obvious answer here. I would point out to further complicate the matter, Jesus uses the word Hades in this story. And as we discussed earlier, in every other instance, he always used Gehenna to talk about you in particular are going to get punished, or this other person in particular is going to get punished. And he always used Hades in the sense like like a modern sense of this place has gone to hell or y'all are going to hell like a corporate punishment a group of people that is going to hell or the concept of hell so you would kind of expect him to use gehenna because he's talking about just one person's specific punishment so why is this the outlier when it is also an outlier among jesus's parables um it's a real head scratcher what specifically he was trying to say here but I had to bring it up in this episode because the way that Jesus describes Sheol slash paradise is an important cornerstone of the belief in the whole heaven's waiting room concept. So it had to go in this episode. That's all I have to say. It's a weird one. It is also very much one of these stories. It feels like the Christians were saying, okay, here's something that Jesus said. How do we make this into case law? Right. And it's a particularly bad one for that. Because when we talk about those other parables, 
especially in like Christian context and context of the rest of the New Testament, they make perfect sense. The story of the prodigal son, everybody knows what that story means. Like if you stray from good and come back to good, you're valuable to God. Every, that it is incredibly clear. It is more clear than if Jesus had just said that. Telling the way that he told the story made the point better than if he had just said what his point was. The story about the boss who writes off a debt for his employee and then the employee is ungrateful is pretty darn clear. God has done, a, a, like, God has done you a big favor if you if he redeemed you and now you're going to go to heaven maybe try not to be ungrateful it, it is why so this is a real outlier among parables because the point isn't clear the language is unusual in more than one way and the ifb has taken i'm tormented in this flame and i'm thirsty so the rich man said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. So that one little piece from this huge confusing parable and the IFB says, see, there's flame in hell and you're going to be thirsty in hell. Yeah, they're just trying to find something to make it case law. So outside of what Jesus had to say, other New Testament references to hell could be split into two rough categories. So one would be from epistles. So the letters to the church, which is the majority of the New Testament outside of. So the New Testament is the four gospels, the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, a bunch of epistles, and then revelation. That's that's what the New Testament is. So there are references from Acts and epistles, and then there are references from Revelation. I'm going to look at a few examples from the epistles because outside of Jesus's words, the bad afterlife hell is so often simply referenced as death or the second death. Some examples that a lot of people would know would be in verses like Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In that verse, death is the thing you get if you don't get eternal life. It's death or eternal life. The other word you'd see a lot in the epistles is perish when referring to not heaven. So perish shows up in probably the most famous Bible verse in the world, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So in that verse, perish, which is another word for death, is what you get if you don't get everlasting life. This also shows up in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but it's long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Perish as in die is presented as the alternative to everlasting life or eternal life in many places in the New Testament. Jesus even does this in Luke 13, 5, John 10, 28. It also appears in Romans 2, 12, 2 Thessalonians 2, 10, and many other verses. There is one verse that references eternal fire outside of Jesus. Um, so Jude, verse 7, and Quick TW for, um, this is also a clobber verse, homophobic clobber verse. 
even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So that particular verse, some people obviously interpret eternal fire as being about hell. I think an interesting way of looking at that would be eternal shame, but that's not what the text says. It does say eternal fire. The only places in the New Testament outside of Jesus that we really get those hard, literal descriptions of hell are in Revelation. And hell in Revelation is not really hell. So you remember in the heaven episode, we talked about how the new Jerusalem is actually the final good place after the apocalypse and Armageddon and all of that. Yes. Saved people go to now is the abode of God. The New Jerusalem, in a biblical literalist point of view, does not exist yet. It will be made one day, and that's where the streets of gold and the gates of pearl are. Well, the Lake of Fire is the other side of that coin. It is the prophesied final bad place. From a biblical literalist point of view, not yet created because its creation is told in Revelation. So Revelation 20 verse 10 And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this gets a lot more clear about tormented day and night forever and ever. Yeah. (laughs) But if you read that verse, who does it say is getting tormented day and night forever and ever? The devil, the beast, and the false prophet, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Not you, Joe Schmo, who... Stayed home to watch football instead of going to church. If you're going to accept Revelation as literal and prophetic, sure, the devil, the beast, and the false prophet are going to be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then Revelation 21.8, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So this is tying Lake of Fire and Brimstone to the second death, which is referenced all throughout the New Testament. Revelation says that anyone who doesn't have their name written in the book of life will end up in this lake of fire. Although it only technically says that tormented day and night forever and ever applies to the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. So this still could fit in with the Gehenna theory, like you burn but you don't necessarily burn forever so just like the ifb conflates the new jerusalem with current heaven even though they're two different places they also conflate the lake of fire with current hell although they're two different places also john the revelator when he writes this text in revelation which you are free to believe is literal metaphorical or just a mushroom trip john the revelator is echoing jesus jesus was influenced by jewish views at the time of hell and possibly by some greek views at the time and then john is influencing whoever wrote the apocalypse of peter which i remind you was accepted by some of the early church and was also more heavily influenced by greek catabasis and also supports the idea of non-eternal torment and the medium place so having covered most of the scriptures about hell that i wanted to cover do you feel like there's less hell in the bible than you thought they would be so after we did the heaven episode I thought that there would be pretty much nothing, which is kind of what there was in the heaven episode. And I almost feel like there's maybe a little more than I thought. Also, we watched 
the burning hell which was a movie that was made to combat the theological idea that hell isn't in the bible and if there was a theological movement behind that idea that hell isn't in the bible then my assumption was that there probably wasn't actually any hell in the bible and, I, can, I can see how you got there yeah but if sheol isn't hell then hell is not in the old testament at all and if gehenna isn't hell there have been very few verses that we've covered that are actually about hell. Yeah, I just assumed that if the IFB had to create a theological movement to combat something, then that thing is fake. Yeah. They, they, well, like that the IFB, then that movement that they're trying to combat is probably more accurate than whatever it is the IFB is trying to say that the actual thing is, because otherwise they wouldn't have to fight to combat it. So to me, it can be kind of similar to the LGBTQ clobber verses in the Bible. There are about seven verses or passages that are most often used to condemn LGBTQ people. And when I did my own study on them a couple of years ago, six out of those seven are very clearly not about consensual same-sex or same-gender sexual or romantic interaction inside or outside of marriage. There's one verse that's left over, and there is good reason to think that it is not about consensual same-sex or same-gender sexual or romantic interaction, but it's more questionable than the other six. Six out of the seven are 100% clearly about consent and the interactions that they condemn as sinful are inherently non-consensual and that is the sin not the gayness of the thing and then there's that one verse in romans that's left over that i think there's a perfectly good reason to think it is not about consensual interactions but it's more questionable than the other six so i don't use words like the bible doesn't condemn lgbtq relationships at all because i think that's unnecessarily simplistic when we're talking about these verses that have been used to hurt so many people, these verses that have caused people to die. What I say instead is in cultural context and in context with the rest of the scriptures, there truly is another way to look at these verses. I believe that they are always about consent. The topic of hell feels so similar to that to me. I wouldn't go around just kind of glibly saying there's no hell in the Bible. I think it's much more accurate and takes people's fears and traumas more seriously when we say something like the verses about hell are a reflection of the culture and the influences of the people who wrote them. The verses about hell definitely support the concept of sin having consequences, but they don't support a literal burning eternal conscious torment the way that biblical literalists say they do. I think that the point about the Bible being written at a certain time by certain people is very important to point out, especially with like when you're talking about the LGBTQ clobber verses, because if you aren't, if you don't believe that the Bible is, you need to do these commandments and that affects your eternal destination and whether or not you get tortured for eternity or you get rewarded for eternity and you need to do this and that then you're able to then look at this and say who wrote this and why if you're not a person who believes that these are literal commandments from god which i think that a lot of our audience don't believe that these are all literal commandments from our god from god some people think that they are but if you don't believe that then you would have to conclude that they were 
written by people and it would be completely within and and if you were to tell me that people in ancient israel were against homosexuality then i would probably believe it because to be frank most ancient cultures were against homosexuality weren't they right. yeah um sure many were and many it's kind of like when we try to look at Judaism as like diet Christianity or, or in the framework of Christianity, we get it wrong. When we look at ancient cultures within the framework of modern American culture, we get it wrong because in a lot of cultures, it wouldn't have been, it's not, you know, a gay pride parade <laughs> the way that we see it now in America. But there was a different version of sexuality completely where some things would have been acceptable and others wouldn't. And then there are some ancient cultures that were very homophobic and there's, there's a range of different things. I'm thinking back to when we had pastor Noah on and he said to me, uh, or he said to us that back then people wouldn't have been defined by saying I am gay. They would have been saying like it, it would, your identity isn't, I am a thing. Your identity is, this is what I do. Mm -hmm. And those are, and, and that's not how we define people and that's not how we define things these days. And so that's a very important distinction to make. Let's, uh, move on to the next yeah. uh, so section. Of course. Yeah. But of course, looking at things like that, that's higher criticism. So it's not acceptable to any kind of fundamentalist or biblical literalist. It's really neat though, if you can free yourself from strict biblical literalism, you do not have to jump from the Bible is a literal word of God and every single word is inspired and preserved all the way over to the Bible is a story is, is a book of nice stories that tell us about God and our place in the world. There's actually there's a lot of space between those two things. And there are a lot of good places to land between those good things. You can believe that the Bible is inspired and still believe that it was impacted and affected by the human scribes who wrote it down. You can believe that God spoke to holy men of old who wrote down the Bible and they still snuck some of their personal preferences in there and the Bible is still the word of God. That is a place that you can land. There is there's a lot of space in there. And if you are willing to step outside of biblical literalism just a little bit, it really expands the way that you think about scripture. And personally, I think if you're the kind of person who wants to call the Bible the living word of God, then that would be a good step for you to take. But I think we should jump out of the scripture and into a different realm because we need to talk about how the idea of physical torture in hell evolved over time. So what we actually have from scripture is the concept of a purifying flame and the implication of physical pain for the people who experience hell. But the different theories about what kind of physical torture definitely evolved over time. Uh, St. Augustine had a part in this. Other visionaries and theologians had a part in this, but no one was more influential than Dante, whose visions of hell are still a part of popular thought today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right. So Dante's Inferno. Let's go. Um, in the I early know you've been waiting. <laughs> In the early 1300s, Italian poet Dante Alighieri wrote what is regarded by some to be the most influential piece of Italian literature of all time, uh, known as the Divine Comedy. One of the parts of, of the Divine Comedy is Inferno, which is part poetry and part like self-insert religious fantasy novel. And Dante writes a story in which he goes on a journey through hell guided by the Roman poet Virgil. Hell has nine circles. Each one has a sin that is associated with it. And I guess whichever sin you are doomed, like most guilty of, like that's the circle of hell that you go to that you're doomed to hell for. And that's the circle that you end up in. After passing through hell, Dante then goes to purgatory and then he goes to heaven. So the first circle of hell is limbo, which is for people whose only real problem is that they weren't baptized and this circle honestly doesn't seem that bad it's just like living without god i think this is like where they would have tv but you can choose between watching the golf channel and watching football but the only football that you can watch is cardinals versus panthers or whatever is going on in the acc virgil says that this circle of hell once housed moses king david noah and abraham and basically all of the people who were good and righteous before jesus came and then jesus came down and freed them all during the three days that he was dead that part is literally the exact ifb view of what happened to biblical heroes before jesus died which is hilarious to me i have not read the sequels in detail like you have so I am legitimately curious as to whether or not this is in the Bible at all, or if this is just a religious doctrine that the IFB took from Dante's Inferno, sort of like how they took their doctrines and beliefs about demonic possession from the movie The Exorcist. So this is the thing I was talking about with the rich man and Lazarus and Sheol and the waiting room of heaven sharing the lobby with hell when I talked about that part last week. Sheol on one side and Abraham's bosom or paradise on the other side is where all the dead people went in IFB theology, good or bad, gonna be saved or not saved. And then when Jesus died, he went down there to get all of the people like, like Moses and Abraham and people who were righteous but not technically saved because you couldn't be saved before jesus died on the cross so he went down there and got all of them and swooped them up to heaven with god 
But that's not in the Bible. It, it's like vaguely referenced, but no, not not directly. No. So the second circle of hell is the circle of lust, uh, aka horny jail, and this is where Cleopatra is, I guess. Huh. Uh, Does Dante name check Cleopatra? Yeah, he literally says, uh, "Yeah, I saw Cleopatra." Oh. Here. Okay, yeah, like, that's interesting. In this, in there's like tons of of places where he's like, "This is where this guy is. This is where this guy is. This is where this guy is." But like, he was alive in like the third. So he like, I'm like, how do you know what Cleopatra looks like, Dante? Did you ever see like? Does she just look like the paintings or look like the pictures or or, or what's going on here? You know, maybe she had a name tag. I I don't know. So third circle is the gluttony circle, and you have to go here and literally eat have worms rain down on you you also go here if you have addictions which seems kind of bad to punish people eternally and make them eat if they have bad mental health uh especially because this is like before they knew that mental health was a thing but okay kind of sad about that one the fourth circle is the circle of greed and in this circle, Dante says, this is where clergy members, including popes and bishops and cardinals who have embezzled wealth of the church go uh, if they did that for like personal gain. If they embezzled money for personal gain, they're in uh, the fourth circle of hell for greed. And in this circle, people are like carrying weights on their chests and they have to keep chasing more and more gold. And then they add to the weight until it slowly crushes them. That's a very appropriate punishment, though. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 very poetic. Some of these are, I mean, it is a po it's literally poetic because it is a poem. The fifth circle of hell is wrath, and this is where people fight each other over and over and over for eternity and are consumed by rage, and then they choke each other so nobody in this circle can ever speak because they're all getting choked. So that's where Twitter users go. <laughs> yeah, this is why I logged off of Twitter. See, if you delete your Twitter, you escape the fifth circle of hell. I mean, Twitter is the fifth circle of hell. Let's be real. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's X now, whatever the f I refuse to call it that. Um, you know what? When Elon stops dead naming his daughter, then I will stop dead naming Twitter. Good luck. Sixth, uh, the sixth circle of hell is for heretics. This is different from limbo because heresy is for people who led others astray and they're tortured here for that. Fun fact, this circle houses both a pope and a holy Roman emperor. Oh, interesting. Seventh circle is the circle of violence, and this is the circle where, like, in, in this circle, there's three rings, depending on the severity of the violence, and if you try to escape, a centaur then shoots you with an arrow, and unfortunately, in the circle uh, is people who ended their own lives and engaged in self-harm, and they get turned into trees that are fed upon by harpies. Uh, That's not very nice. No, it's not very nice. Dante, not not a, like... He's not very compassionate in his description of hell. Also, this is the circle where the gays are because apparently being gay is violence against nature. So not a great look for Dante. Yeah. Yikes. Ew. Um, yeah. Eighth circle of hell is for fraud. And this is apparently where sex workers go. I think it's kind of f***ed up that if you're a sex worker, then you go to the eighth circle. But if you're just like a horny person who pays for sex, then you only go to the second circle. Uh, it does seem convenient, though, that sex workers and corrupt politicians go to the same circle because this is also the circle where corrupt, corrupt politicians go. I think that Dante was thinking about logistics when he made uh, sex workers and corrupt politicians go to the same circle. Yeah, but that seems like the corrupt politicians get a better deal and the sex workers get a worse deal. 
Yeah, I know. He's he's Dante is I mean, you can't call him a, fe a feminist, so you can't call him a swerf. <sighs> but like whatever the non-feminist version of swerf is, that's what Dante is. He's a a, a, a swerm. Uh, <laughs> Which is he's a Where sex the worker. Dieth not, and the fire yeah, is not quenched. <laughs> yeah, he's a sex worker, exclusive, radical meninist, I guess, or or misogynist. misogynist? I, I just I assumed M was for misogynist. Yeah, if you go, if you say that gay people go to the violent circle and sex workers go to the uh, uh, fraud circle, then like I f off. I then this is hell and we're all living in it and you are the worm that will not die and keeps eating me ninth circle is for betrayers and and like traitors uh, betrayers and traitors and this one has four rings and like a frozen lake made of the devil's own tears and this one is for like for very specific crimes so there's a ring named after kane who uh is a betrayer because he slew his own brother this is the ring where you go if you betray your family uh there is a ring for antonera who was a soldier who betrayed his city and this is the ring where you go if you commit treason against your country there is a ring for uh ptolemy is it ptolemy is that how you say that ptolemy for yeah there's a ring for ptolemy and if you you go here if you betray a guest in your own home and i assume that this is where walder frey from game of thrones went and then there is a ring for judas where you go if you're a traitor against god and then you get frozen into a statue see once again that does not seem like the worst punishment yeah. compared this does not make as much sense as i expected it to go <laughs> to expected it to make I assume like I read I, I read this in English and it's like I mean the it, the people who translate it did a decent enough job of it but I'm like reading I'm like this is a, f a fever dream right here and I assume that it sounds better in Italian because everything sounds better in Italian but this kind of got me to thinking like if you were in hell what ring do you think you would go to? Uh, I feel like greed is where I'm most afraid of going. Like mm. that's where, not because of the punishment, but just because that is so not the person I want to be. So hopefully I can keep myself out of there. Technically, I have received Christian baptism, although it wasn't Catholic baptism. So I may or may not get out of the whole thing. I mean, once I don't know, I don't know, right? Yeah, but at the time this was written, the Catholic Church was not recognizing other Christian baptisms. I don't think it, that that's true. Um, Especially not I, Baptist. Baptists weren't particularly popular in the 1300s. No, what what is that? The Trail of Blood. That's yeah. you guys. Uh, the one of the real parts of the Trail of Blood. <laughs> like in the 1300s, the baptism that I would have received would have maybe been. Anabaptist or may have been too early for Anabaptist. It may have been like Waldensian or something. So I don't know if, if Dante thought that counted or not. I think I would obviously go to the ninth circle because I'm a Jew and Jews are disloyal to their own country. Yes, but horny jail is definitely where you belong. Like partying with Cleopatra forever. I am sort of bothered by like this depiction because like, so according to the IFB, no matter what sins you commit, if you get saved by Jesus, you go to heaven. But it seems very odd to me that there would be separate punishments for different sins because the IFB hates works-based salvation. So why is works-based damnation okay? 
So the IFB believe just that one part about about limbo being a thing before Jesus died and then Jesus swooped in to get all the people. Um, they don't believe the rest of it about levels of hell. They did originally with the apocalypse of Peter and all that stuff, but they don't any like so early Christians believed that originally, but the IFB does not believe that. The IFB believes that everybody gets pretty much the same treatment in hell, like all the torture all the time. There is a little caveat that they theorize that the worst people get the worst torture or more torture than other people. So it's right back to what we were saying in heaven, uh, the heaven episode where I quoted John Piper quoting Jonathan Edwards. Um, and Jonathan Edwards was like, everybody's perfectly happy and perfectly holy in heaven, but some people have more capacity to be holy than others. So they are more happy than others, but everybody's perfectly happy and happy for everybody else. Even the people that are more happy than they are because they are more holy. It, it's the same thing about hell. Everybody is tortured in hell. Everybody has an experience beyond what we can even understand as physical pain or torture in life. However, the worst people get even more of that. The IFB logic behind this is the devil delights in having deceived anyone so much that they ended up in hell. But the people that the devil deceived the most and turned them into horrible people who hurt other people delight the devil more. And how he expresses that delight is by torturing them extra in hell. So the people that did the worst things get the worst torture from the devil because the devil is cruel. And the devil is like, I tricked you into being a really bad person and now I can torture you even more. So it's Animal Farm Heaven and Animal Farm Hell. Yes. Kind of. Okay. Also worth noting, French Polynesia is the mountain of purgatory where Dante where Dante goes after getting the grand tour of hell from Virgil. Uh, okay. Because I, I looked it up. Apparently there's a mountain of purgatory where you come out the other side and it is 180 degrees opposite of where Jerusalem is on the globe. And I looked that up and apparently that's French Polynesia. So, hmm. uh, Yeah. So if you uh, go through purgatory, you come out French Polynesia, which honestly sounds kind of nice. I've heard it's nice there. So I would love to finish up this episode talking about some alternate Christian interpretations of hell. Let's do it. So first, I want to recognize that there are a lot of different categories of listeners that we know we have out there. I know we have listeners who just aren't believers in religion at all. And that's one perfectly valid way to deal with this. It isn't real because God isn't real. And when you die, that's it. So you won't be going to hell. And there are those people who have always believed that way. And there are those people who grew up in fundamentalism and now believe that way. And if that's you, more than anything, I hope you feel at peace. I hope that your belief inspires you to make the most of your life now. And if you've stuck through this whole episode about a thing you don't believe in, uh, thank you so much for supporting our podcast. I think we also have some listeners who are believers, but just have a different view of God's justice and believe that the problem of hell is a non-issue. Some people feel like, oh, I don't know about all this, but I trust God to be just and punish the people who need punishing and take care of everyone else. That's great. Some people feel like all of the talk in hell, of hell in the Bible was just cultural and is not meant to be literal. There are a lot of ways, both as a believer and a non-believer, to not deal 
with the problem of hell, to not wrestle with it the way that I often do. And truly, that's great. If you found a way that this doesn't impact the one life that you know for sure you have now, that's fantastic. And I don't want to invalidate anyone who is able to just not wrestle with this. Like truly, like no, I don't, no sarcasm, no talking down to you. If you feel like you're free from this, that's great. But I'm one of the people who, for whatever reason in my brain, is not. I feel compelled to think about this and dig into it and talk about it. For people who are like me, I think it's interesting to look at some of the ways that theologians have attempted to solve the problem of hell. I also think this is really relevant to people who were raised with an extreme belief in a literal hell, whether you believe it now or you don't. Because when we leave fundamentalism, we lose so much. And grieving what we lost is such a big part of that process. And I think sometimes we need to know what we have lost in order to grieve it, if that makes sense. If there is a version of Christian teachings about hell that is more compassionate and feels more just than what you were raised with, and you missed out on that, even if you would have walked away from religion in the end, you can still grieve having missed the more compassionate view of hell. You can still grieve the trauma that was brought upon you by these teachings, even if you believe that, that walking away from belief and walking away from religion was the right thing and was the answer for you. So I think that's, that's why look at the alternate theories, at least for me. So one thing that has interested a lot of people through a large amount of Christian history is annihilationism. Hmm. Annihilationism is the idea that Jesus is able to give you eternal life because the other option other than eternal life is just dying and not having eternal life. So not living in hell forever, just dying. The punishment isn't eternal conscious torture. The punishment is just FOMO, missing out on eternal life with God and God's presence and your saved loved ones. Uh, in the teaching of annihilationism, if you die and you do not have eternal life, your soul is just destroyed and ceases to be. I think the scriptural evidence for this one is really interesting. The word hell comes up 54 times in the New Testament in King James. The word perish comes up 153 times in the New Testament in King James. So nearly three times as many mentions of perish as opposed to hell. Now, some of these perish in the New Testament and King James are referring to just plain old dying. But perish is shown as the alternative to eternal life over and over and over, or death or second death. So 2 Peter 3.9, which I already quoted once in this episode, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So in that verse, perish is the alternative to repentance. Perhaps an even more interesting verse in support of annihilationism is 2 Thessalonians 1.9. 
who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Um, so the punishment is destruction from the presence of the Lord. For those who want to look this up at home, you'd want to read about the doctrine of conditional immortality. So conditional immortality teaches that only saved souls live forever because Jesus has the power of eternal life, but lost souls do not receive eternal life or eternal death. They simply die and are gone. Before I move on, I do think this is really interesting when you put it back with Jesus talking about Gehenna. As I said earlier, when you burn your trash on a trash heap, it burns for a short time, but then eventually it burns out and it is no more. So annihilationism can also be combined with the idea of a temporary hell, temporary punishment, and still work. Of course, we'd be remiss to mention hell without mentioning universalism. Remember back in the Calvinism episode, we talked about limited atonement. Like, what if there was only enough of Jesus's death to go around for the people that God chose to be saved? Universalism is, in a way, the opposite of that. It's the belief that Jesus's death and resurrection and God's grace are sufficient to save every person, regardless of how bad they were or whether they did not accept Christ. Some universalists believe that everybody is redeemed at the point of death through the power of just how big the atonement of Jesus is. It is just enough to cover even the worst sins and everybody goes to heaven. Other universalists believe in a purgatory type deal where people who were sinful or unbelieving suffer in hell for a limited time, uh, A, to atone for their sins, or B, to learn their lesson and then are able to go to heaven. So in that view of universalism, hell is more like a timeout until you learn your lesson, as opposed to being grounded for all of time and eternity. Some verses that I find interesting in support of universalism, Revelation 1.18, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and I have the keys of Hades and of death. And then 1 Corinthians 15.22, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. The last passage I want to read, this is one of Paul's, like, infamous thought spirals. So I apologize. This is one of like Paul's verses that barely makes sense, but I'll explain what he's, what I think he's trying to say. <laughs> it's Romans uh, 5.17 through 21, and I'm using the NRSV because that is the least weird translation I could find. There is no, I did not find a good translation of this verse. I checked the message, I checked NLT, I checked everything because Paul is spiraling. <laughs> If because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. But law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that just as sin exercised dominion in death, so grace might exercise dominion through justification leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I'm sorry for subjecting you to one of the Apostle Paul's infamous thought spirals, but what he's saying is Adam was the poison for everyone why wouldn't Jesus be the antidote for everyone? Oh, just like the 
man's blood in uh, a thief in the night when he got bit by the cobra. When Jim right. got bit by the cobra. If everybody had been got, had been bit by a co- by the same cobra, there was enough of that one guy's blood to dose everybody in the world. Would the doctor withhold the antidote from some people, whether they asked for it or not? Like if somebody didn't know that the antidote exists, wouldn't they still be able to get it? Like if the doctor knew? I mean, it depends on how their health insurance situation was, if they had a copay, if they had a... The the idea of universalism is Adam's sin was big enough to mess us all up, but isn't Jesus's death enough to fix it all for everybody? The only issue I have with universalism is that there kind of seems like there's a consent problem because some people might live such a life on earth that they would say something like, you know, if there is a God and if God is able to redeem me, I don't want to be redeemed. You could look at that from a universalist point of view as well. They just don't know what's good for them. And they just don't know that God's real. And they just don't know that hell's real. And, um, you know, God will talk them into receiving salvation or God will just give them salvation and they'll get over it. But that feels wrong to me because if God is strictly the Christian God as portrayed only in the Bible and not in any other religion or philosophical belief, it feels kind of icky for the Christian God to be taking all of these other people and forcing them to believe in him after death so that they can go to heaven. That feels, it feels a heck of a lot less icky than God sending people to hell because they believed in something different. It's better than that. It's way better than that. But there is kind of, it is kind of a little bit icky to me still, and I still need more research on it, which is why I've referred to myself as a Christian humanist or as a conditional universalist or as a pseudo universalist, because that's kind of where I find, where I find myself. Theologically, I really see a lot of merits in universalism. However, the consent issue is tripping me up at the moment, and I don't quite know where I'm going to land. I mean, you didn't consent to being born. Right, exactly. So do you have so. to consent to being born again? Or is it the kind of thing where you die, and then when you see God, you get it, and you do want to be redeemed, so you do consent? And universalism is just because there isn't anybody who doesn't consent once they get in that position. I, I'm seeing the parallels between in this where you're like, well, the most important thing is consent, just like how the fundies are like, obey your father, the, the obedience is more important than the actual biblical literalism. Like when we were talking about that, it's it's funny just to see what what their theology is based on what they prioritize. Mm-hmm. And- yeah, I just I don't like the idea of like somebody like you. Obviously, I don't believe that somebody like you gets sent to hell by the Christian God because you didn't believe in Jesus. Oh, thank you. I think there, there's I really something better that. than that. I don't know what it is, but there's something better than that. I also don't believe, though, that like, so let's say we both live to be 95 years old and then we die. And God is like, okay, Gavi, you didn't believe in Jesus, but that's okay. You try to be a good person. All of your sins are able to be redeemed. All you got to do is believe in Jesus now and come into heaven. And like the idea that God would like magically change your mind to make you believe in Jesus so that you can go into heaven and hang out with me is kind of icky to me also. I, what if God was like, well, I need you to believe in Jesus now. And I'm like, can I see like some like game footage of like what really happened? Yeah. That's kind of that's like, the, I'm like, can we get like a, 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 can you, like, you know how in Harry Potter, they've got like the pensive 
and you can like do like memories and then like go into the pensive and walk around and, and watch people's memories. And I'm like, can I do that for Jesus? Cause like, if that's the truth, just let me see it, see it with my own eyes. And if like, he's for real, for real, then like, I'll be like, you know what? Bet I was wrong. And see, in Christian theology, that should be perfectly fine because one of Jesus' apostles did not believe that he was raised from the dead until Jesus literally let him put his finger through the hole in his hand. I do, th- I do think it is very interesting, though, that whenever... Because, like, so, like, if it played out that way, God should be like, yeah, sure, here you go. Yeah, but, like, I, I just remember all of these Jack Heil sermons that I've listened to where he said, woe on you, be it who doubt the resurrection. <laughs> like, and I'm like, I kind of doubt the resurrection. Like, me personally, like, I, mm, like, I'm, but I'm like, mm. there's all these different versions of universalism. And is it, like, God... Is like, hey, dude, it's cool. I get it. I get why you were doubting. Do you want to go into heaven? And you're like, yeah, I totally do. And God's like, cool. Let's be buds. I would say, what are my other options? Or like, is it you- like, or is it like God, like, okay, but you have to say you believe in Jesus now? Or is it God, like Calvinism style, going into your brain and magically making you believe in Jesus? And like, that's what I have an issue with. I can't imagine a world in which believing in one guy is the either the ticket or not the ticket that just it seems so, like it's it just feels so reductive to me is yeah and like even if that guy like being the son of god and dying which is substitutionary atonement was the thing it wouldn't his atonement be enough whether you believed or not but that still kind of forces people to go to heaven through Jesus, even people who would specifically say, while alive, I don't want that. So the last one I want to mention is kind of out there and not quite as well supported in the scripture, but I like it because it align- it solves some of my issues with universalism and it aligns really well with the God that a lot of people might hope to encounter if they were to die and find themselves in the presence of a God. Relational hell which I mentioned earlier, it's the concept that all the fire and brimstone and worms and whatnot were metaphors for a different kind of purification that a person might undergo after death. So in relational health theories, a person who dies and has harmed other people would be forced to confront the harms that they had done, maybe by experiencing them through the eyes and the memory and the body of the person they harmed, or maybe through a process similar to purgatory where they experience similar situations inflicted upon them by others. However it happens, they truly experience the gravity of the harms that they have done and they are given the opportunity to repent. This one I like because it says a lot about the grace of God, because it implies that God is also experiencing the full extent of the harms that we cause to other people. And God says to the sinner, I knew all of these sins and the harm that you caused. I experienced them along with your victims the first time you caused them. I experienced them along with you as you confronted them. But even knowing the full extent of every harm you caused, I want to forgive you. Will you accept that forgiveness? And this really appeals to me. I've talked about this before because as terrifying as it is to think about confronting every harm I've ever done to someone, it kind of feels satisfying as well the opportunity to actually repent of every harm I have ever done, even the ones that I don't know about now while I'm alive. Again, it's terrifying, but the concept of getting through that process to the other side seems 
very freeing. I think this is a neat philosophical out to full universalism because I think there are very few humans who by nature would experience such an experience where they actually were confronted with every single harm they had ever done in its full extent and choose not to repent and be redeemed. But I think there, there may be a person does exist who is so hardened by their cruelty towards other people that they could go through that experience and decide against redemption or repentance. So it's a neat like workaround to my consent issues with universalism. It also solves the problem of limited atonement and the problem of grace because it affirms that atonement and grace are far beyond sufficient for every sin of the human race, that humans are not able to stop God from offering this actually infinite grace and forgiveness. And it solves the consent issues with universalism because people could ultimately not consent to be forgiven. Uh, like I said, it's not so well scripturally reported, um, scripturally supported, but there is Daniel chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. So like butterfly effects too. So like, oh, the, you were mean to this person, and then that per that caused another person to be mean to that person. But also like, that's kind of like you would just have to watch all of human history over and over and over and over and over again. Or maybe that's just what we're experiencing now. Yeah. Is that so this is where you get into like all sorts of different things, including the tiny percentage of Christians who believe in reincarnation. But we don't have time for that today. <laughs> that's wild. Thanks. Uh, do you have Do you have anything to say to kind of wrap this up? Um, yeah. Um, this has been intense and winding and i've had a lot of fun with it my point is hell is not as cut and dried and and literal as the fundies want you to believe scripture talks about hell but the references aren't completely consistent nobody knows for sure exactly who does and doesn't go to hell no matter how much they tell you that they do if somebody tells you that they know exactly what hell is and exactly what goes on there and exactly who goes there they're wrong and they're trying to control you. I think if you are a believer, rest your faith in a just God. Of course, don't do your best for the for yourself. Do your best for the people around you. Of course, try to be a righteous person. Try to let your faith in God lead the way and dispel fears of hell as much as you can. And if you're not a believer, but you've been troubled by some of these passages or you've had someone use them to try to scare you, I really hope this episode has helped you put that aside as well. I think when we look at the scriptural evidence for hell, we don't get a lot of, like the Bible says, it's not real that we might like to see, but we do get, it's a lot more complicated with it than what you think. And again, anyone who tells you that they know exactly what hell is like and that you're going to go there is attempting to control you. I disagree. I think that hell is very real and it's an eternal place of conscious torture. And if you disagree with me, you're probably going there. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. This has been the Leaving Eden podcast. Make sure that you tune in next week where we're going to be talking about Hobby Lobby and all of the horrible stuff that they get up to. And that should be fun. 
I'm trying to think what, what else do I have to say and if you like our show if you're a fan of our show you can follow us on social media our uh, Facebook Instagram and threads at Leaving Eden Podcast you can follow me on all of those platforms at G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N Sadie your socials you can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music on Twitter at Hell Yeah Sadie and on Twitter wait and on TikTok at Sadie Carpenter One Thank you guys for tuning in. You guys are the best. Bye-bye.